Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In chapter 14 of his work After Virtue, Alistair McIntyre is going to be starting out by posing a question for us. Is there some sort of unified account of the virtues that we can come up with? And part of what McIntyre has been doing throughout the entire work and really throughout his career is looking at different ways in which human beings historically have understood and articulated and attempted to practice and to teach or inculcate the virtues. And he tells us that there are in fact different listings and different understandings of the virtues. So it's not quite so simple as many of the proponents of virtue ethics in a very abstract way want to say where, well, everybody recognizes there are these basic virtues and everyone agrees on them. McIntyre says that's not the case at all. He says, if we think about, and he just brings up several different things, Homer, Sophocles, Aristotle, the New Testament and medieval thinkers differ from each other in many ways. He says they offer different, and here's where it gets even more important, incompatible lists of the virtues. They give a different rank order of importance to different virtues, and they have different and incompatible theories of the virtues. So they're not all just simply using different language to talk about the same thing. McIntyre is saying there's a number of different virtue ethics out there and we want to understand which of them, if any, is closer to the core of what we would call a proper robust virtue ethics. And then he's going to discuss five different let's call them paragons of virtue ethics, exemplars that we can look at. One of these is Homer, and we could sort of shoehorn the Greek tragedians in there as well. Another is Aristotle. Another is found in the writings of the New Testament. So for example, the gospels and the various letters. And then we have Ben Franklin and Jane Austen. And you might say, well, that's kind of a, a weird eclectic list. Why would you possibly pick those. I mean, I understand why you picked Homer, Aristotle, and the New Testament, because we all know that those are great literature. Why then Ben Franklin? And why uh, of anybody, Jane Austen, who he doesn't really talk that much about in this chapter, other than to give us a few sort of hints about what his view is. He says, well, each of these is representative of a particular way of understanding what the virtues would be and how they ought to be ordered and which ones matter the most and which ones might actually be vices. So as I mentioned, each has its own, he says, it turns out the way in which these catalogs are ordered, in which items are ranked as relatively central to human experience and which marginal, these are things that they disagree on. And there's also a relationship of virtues to the social order. So he gives examples here. For Homer, the paradigm of human excellence is who? The warrior, right? Agamemnon, Achilles. Odysseus to a certain degree, right? And, and then he says, for Aristotle, it's the Athenian gentleman. The kalo kagathoi is what it is in Greek. And he says, indeed, according to Aristotle, certain virtues are only available to those of great riches and high social status. And then he says, well, what about the New Testament? This brings in some additional views. And it's different from Aristotle's point of view. He says, 
that for the New Testament not only praises virtues of which Aristotle knows nothing, faith, hope, and love, the theological virtues, it says nothing about virtues such as phronesis, which are crucial for Aristotle, and it praises one quality as a virtue, which Aristotle seems to count as one of the vices, namely humility. And it also has a different view on the, the rich and whether the virtues are available to people. He says then, if we look at all three lists of virtues considered so far, the Homeric, the Aristotelian, and the New Testament, if we compare them with two later lists, and here's where we get the later thinkers, one of which can be compiled from Jane Austen's novels and the other which Benjamin Franklin constructed for himself. So here's where he does talk about Jane Austen. He says, two features stand out in Jane Austen's list. The first is the importance allotted to the virtue she calls constancy. So a different kind of virtue being brought up here. And another is, he says that what agreeableness viewed by Aristotle as a good virtue, that's often translated as friendliness, right? She says that this is not actually a virtue. This is just a facsimile of a virtue. So we already now have a fourth point of view. And then we get Benjamin Franklin. And with Benjamin Franklin, McIntyre wants to stress, we get a very different conception of virtue. Even though he's quite close to Jane Austen in time, why is Franklin's listing of the virtues so different? He says, we find almost all the types of difference from at least one of the catalogs we've considered and one more. Franklin includes virtues which are new to our consideration. What are these? Or cleanliness, silence, industry. He clearly considers the drive to acquire itself part of virtue, whereas for the ancient Greeks, this is the vice of greed or pleonexia. And then he says he also redefines some familiar virtues. And what do we mean by redefining? Well, this is where we get to different understandings of the virtues. Franklin, if you've ever read his autobiography where this is coming from, he provides a listing of these and each of which is, as McIntyre says, elucidated by citing a maxim obedience to which is the virtue in question. So on the one hand, Franklin's treatment is, we might say, more deontological, more rules focused than is, say, Aristotle's or the New Testament or Jane Austen, which are in some respect more traditionally virtue ethics the way we typically understand it. On the other hand, there's a different measure and motive going on, which McIntyre views as being, quite frankly, utilitarian. He says that Franklin's account, like Aristotle's account, is teleological. That is, the virtues are for something. They have a telos, an end, a goal for which the person who is behaving virtuously is striving. What is that goal and how is it understood? So he tells us, unlike Aristotle's, Franklin's account is utilitarian. According to Franklin in his autobiography, the virtues are means to an end, but he envisages the means and relationship as external rather than internal. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The end to which cultivation of the virtues ministers is happiness, but it's happiness understood as success, prosperity in Philadelphia, and ultimately in heaven. The virtues are to be useful, and Franklin's account continuously stresses utility as a criterion in individual cases. So this is a very different conception of the virtues. 
McIntyre is going to tell us that we can think of at least three main conceptions of virtue here, which are really not entirely compatible with each other and which we can find outside of the narrow scope of just Homer, Aristotle, New Testament, Ben Franklin, and Jane Austen. We can look at other accounts of the virtues and say they fit into this type, they fit into this type, or they fit into this type. And when somebody's talking about virtue ethics, we probably want to figure out which one they actually have in mind. So let's look at the first one, which he identifies with the Homeric paradigm. In this case, what are virtues? They are qualities that allow a person to fulfill a social role. The primary role being that of the warrior, but other people can have virtue as well. You know, a crewmate, a companion can have the virtues appropriate to that. One's wife, in the case of Penelope, can have the virtues appropriate to that. An old man, like Odysseus's father, Laius, can have the virtues appropriate to him. And we can go on and on. But each person, by virtue of the social role that they have, needs certain excellences that allow them to discharge that role well. And so McIntyre says that in this point of view, the concept of what anyone filling such and such a role ought to do is prior to the concept of a virtue. So if we want to know on this account what it means for a person to be virtuous, we need to know what sort of social role or function they have. And we might think about this in our own time. Let's say we get away from Homer and we're looking at sort of the American business workplace and we think about what does it mean to be a good person? Well, it depends. Are you the boss? Are you the employee? Are you an employee on the factory floor? Are you a truck driver moving things from place to place? Are you perhaps in HR? For each of these, it'll be a different answer about what it means to be virtuous. Different virtues will be required for different roles. And there won't be any sort of unified conception of human virtue as such, because we're focusing primarily just on our functions. A second possibility is offered by, he says, Aristotle and the New Testament, both of them in their own way, and also to a certain extent, Jane Austen. This views virtues as qualities that enable an individual to move towards the achievement of what McIntyre calls a specifically human telos, a specifically human goal or end state. And Aristotle calls this happiness and the New Testament also calls this happiness as well as salvation. And then in this sort of account, as he says, even though some virtues are available only to certain types of people in Aristotle's view, virtues attach not to people inhabiting social roles, but to human being as such. It's the telos of human beings as a species, which determines what human qualities are virtues. This is what we mean in talking about specifically human telos. Specifically, not in the sense of being very particular, but in the sense of being specific to the human race, to the kind of beings that we are. So if we take the business thing again, whether we're in HR, whether we're in sales, whether we're in finance, we all need certain virtues in order to be good human beings per se, in order to move towards what our telos or fulfillment would be. Now he says the New Testament is also doing the same thing. And we should look at his treatment of this very quickly. He says the New Testament account of the virtues, even if it differs in content from Aristotle, 
has the same logical and conceptual structure as Aristotle's account. A virtue is a quality, the exercise of which leads to the achievement of the human telos. The good for human beings is of course a supernatural and not a, only a natural good, but supernature redeems and completes nature. And he says, the relationship of virtues as means to an end, which is human incorporation in the divine kingdom of the age to come is also internal and not external, just as it is in Aristotle. So we should talk about that a bit. He says, what does it mean for a means to be internal to an end? He says, a means is internal to it when the end cannot be adequately characterized independently of a characterization of the means, the two to go together. What would be an example of this? Well, he tells us the exercise of the virtues is itself part of the good life. Crucial, McIntyre says, to the good life. So this is a very different conception of what virtues are than say the Homeric, the role bound account. When we get to Ben Franklin and when we get to other people like say the utilitarians themselves, Jeremy Bentham, perhaps to some degree, John Stuart Mill, although McIntyre sees a possible redemption for him to get into this other classification. We think about David Hume, think about Thomas Hobbes, perhaps a lot of other people who reduce the virtues down to traits, which lead us to success. Machiavelli could probably fit in there as well. He says that in these sorts of cases, right, we have the virtues as merely means to the end of success or happiness, whatever it happens to be. And the relationship is external. If you could have the happiness or success without having the virtues, Get rid of the virtues. They're not good in themselves. They're not a distinctive part of the human telos, the point of human life, you might say. So McIntyre says we have three very different conceptions of virtue to confront. And is it possible for us to reconcile these in, in any way? He says, are these three rival accounts of the same thing or are they indeed accounts of three different things? And he's going to say that they're ultimately going to be measured within an Aristotelian framework, which he is supplying, or we might say a neo-Aristotelian framework. But at this point, it, it's enough for us to note that these are three very different conceptions of virtue. So when somebody uses the term virtue or talks about the virtues or particular traits, we want to look to see what sort of viewpoint they actually have on the nature and the purpose of the virtues. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.